Let me invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. As you turn to Colossians, uh, let me paint something of the background of the passage uh, that we have before us that we might appreciate what the Lord is saying here to his church. Uh, The epistle to the Colossians is a prison epistle, like the others just before it, written by the Apostle Paul. It was penned from Rome in about 60 A.D. The church in Colossae was not founded by the Apostle Paul, but by Paul's disciple Epaphras, who was a native of the city. Colossae was located in Asia Minor, in the Lycus Valley near Laodicea, about 100 miles from Ephesus, which has an epistle to before it. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, tells us that that city was historically made up of two different groups, uh, Phrygians, who were in the area, and Jews, who were moved from what is today modern-day Iran uh, into that portion of the empire. About 2,000 Jewish families were settled there in 200 B.C., and Antiochus III gave them the best land, and also he had a plan. He had a tax plan, just like uh, perhaps you heard about last night in the debates. He had a a 10-year no-tax plan so that the Jewish uh, immigrants could get settled in that place and prosper before they had to begin giving money uh, to the empire. That area was disaffected, and they were brought there in order to bring stability and loyalty to the government. But by 62 B.C., Jewish freemen in that area numbered over 11,000 not including women and children. And some of these families were represented back in Jerusalem at Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 10. We're not told explicitly uh, what nations or cities people were from who were converted uh, at the time of Pentecost, but doubtless, given the the numbers involved and, and the importance of the city, there would have been Jews from Colossae converted in that very first public preaching of the gospel after the resurrection of Jesus. So the Colossi church grew up as a mixture. A mixture of Jews on the one hand and people from the surrounding pagan area as well. From each of these two sides, they faced tremendous temptation. On the one hand, on the Jewish side, there was a temptation to legalism. On the other hand, from the pagan side, there was a temptation to mythology and mysticism. And neither one of these were the right direction to head. Instead, the Apostle Paul was here declaring to them the glories of the gospel of Jesus. Paul seeks to inoculate this young church against the harmful temptations of either extreme. Well, with that background in mind, let's hear the Word of God as given to us in Colossians chapter 1, the first eight verses. Paul An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, The gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, 
and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let us pray. Our most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word written, for indeed it reveals the truth about your Son. We ask that your Holy Spirit who inspired this word would now illuminate it that He might shine the, the light and labor of the Word of God even deep in our hearts, that we might respond and be changed, and that we might live to Your glory and the honor of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. At the end of the great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says these words, But these... Three abide, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. What a beautiful verse. What a verse to set to memory. What a verse to encourage us in the new year as we go through our Christian life. Paul is contrasting loveless faith and loveless hope with the absolutely genuine article that comes from Christ Jesus our Lord. Faith, hope, and love form a Christian triad, a three-part teaching that we all need to take to heart. We know that because the Apostle Paul repeats it to so many churches. It's in 1 Corinthians 13, and it's in Romans 5. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and it's also elsewhere in Scripture. Hebrews 6, 1 Peter 1, 1 John chapter 3. Faith, hope, and love are a constant emphasis of the New Testament. The passage we have before us this morning is where Paul traces this triad of faith, hope, and love down to its very roots in the soil of Jesus Christ our Lord. He teaches us here the source from which faith, hope, and love can be a part of our Christian life. And the source from which it springs is in Jesus Christ Himself in whom we live. This passage teaches us that Christ alone gives faith, hope, and love, which you need for daily Christian living and you desperately need for the new year. After introducing himself as an apostle in the opening verse, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, in verse 2. And then he quickly turns to compliment the Colossian church on several counts. First of all, he compliments them for their faith. That faith characterizes the normal Christian life. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. True faith is faith that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Paul is telling the Colossian church. And so we learn here that saving faith is not just an accumulation of facts about God or even about Jesus. And it's not just a mental assent or an emotional agreement with those facts. Rather, saving faith is a heartfelt trust. It's a faith into Jesus. It's a faith that rests on Jesus. Saving faith unites us to Him, makes us one with Him. Just as the voices of the choir echo up and and fill the whole sanctuary and they join the voices of the people of God, the two voices in singing being 
one voice together in praise to our Lord, so the two become one in the same way we become one with Christ Jesus our Lord through faith that is in Him. True faith comes from the preaching of the Word. And there's a a list of illustrations of this impact that we have in this passage. Look at who had preached the gospel in this place and the fruit that it had borne in the faith which they had. We hear in verse 7 of Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And he was the apparent founder of the church in Colossae. But then in verse 1 you have the Apostle Paul, uh, the great apostle to the Gentiles, under whose authority this ministry in a local church far off in the empire was happening. There's also Timothy who is mentioned as a co-author of the scripture. Timothy, our brother, up in verse 1. He was an apostolic helper and one who helped craft, under the inspiration of the Spirit, this particular epistle. Even Onesimus is elsewhere in Scripture mentioned as one who had beneficially labored in Colossae for the kingdom. Uh, he was a slave convert who, was faith, who was, ended up being a faithful elder. He's mentioned in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 9 and doubtless used his gift in that local congregation as well as elsewhere. How God had blessed the church in Colossae. How he had blessed that branch of the church and given them abundant measure of the word, read and preached and sung and also prayed. Oh, all the different forms of the word that God gives us, uh, they were in rich abundance in that place. In Colossae, faithful believers were united to Christ and in Him. And that language is used in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, we read. See, Paul uses very parallel language. He says that the believers are in Christ who are also in Colossae. If they were in that congregation, if they identified themselves with the church, if they had made a profession of faith in Christ our Lord and and they were a part of that believing covenant family, then so too they were in Jesus Christ our Lord, he says. Colossians were located in Colossae. But the more important spiritual reality was their union and communion with Christ, their presence in fellowship with Him, united by faith and by the Holy Spirit. They were in that place, but the more important item was that they were in Jesus Christ our Lord and so had faith in Him. I stand before you this morning to preach the gospel to you. It's an old, old gospel that you've heard over and over and over again down through the years. And you have been gathered together in Biloxi, in this sanctuary, in this moment to hear this word. But the question that faces each one of us is the same question that faced the original audience that heard this, this particular chapter read in Colossae so many centuries ago. We hear it, but do we believe it? We hear it, but do we embrace it? Have we embraced Christ Jesus our Lord? Have we cast our cares upon Him? Do we just know a lot of things about the Gospel? Or do we know the One who Himself is the Gospel, even Jesus Christ our Lord? Have you responded by trust in Him? Have you responded in saving faith, which is a gift that only He can give? It's the most important question you will ever face. 
Do I really love Jesus? Do I really trust in Him? Is He my hope of salvation? Paul compliments the Colossian church for their faith in Him. And so, it is our hope that we all here also trust in Christ and so one day we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Paul says to the Colossians that that kind of faith, saving faith, characterizes the normal Christian life. But then he goes on to speak to the second item, not just faith, but also love. Love characterizes the normal Christian life. In verse 4 he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Here Paul is teaching us that a love for all the saints is part of the normal Christian life. The Colossian believers were known as a group of people that loved one another, that cared for one another. It's not a statement of exclusion, but a statement of inclusion. They are concerned for all. They recognize a special responsibility to love the brethren first and foremost. It's fun to be back at Biloxi and meet with your committee and, and this time have my, my wife present. And I love my wife. And I also love my neighbor. But you know, my love for my wife comes first. We have a, a particular pecking order, a particular set of circle of responsibilities. And our responsibility to love our, our wife and our children, uh, to love family as well as love our neighbor, comes in its proper due and proportion. Love for all the saints. Well, that's an easy thing for us to say. We love our family and we love our church. But if we're very careful, if we focus our mind and heart thoroughly from one end of the congregation to another, we recognize the fact that we must be very careful not to follow the habit of the world in the way that we love. We tend by nature to love those who are like us. We tend by nature to love those who like what we like and hate what we hate. And here the Apostle Paul is complimenting a church that has love for not just some of the saints, but all of the saints. Oh, we must guard against the tendency of self-love and against self-love expressing itself as only loving the neighbors that we happen to like rather than all that the Lord in His providence has put us in contact with. Love one another as Christ has first loved you. Is that what other folks would say about you? Would they say that about you, what the Apostle Paul has said about the Colossian church? Here, Paul is holding up in his epistle a mirror in front of all of us that searches deep into our souls. Do we love Christ so much that we love the brethren, not just the easy ones to love, but all? Do we care not just for ourselves and our small circle of friends within the church, but do we love that larger circle of believers even within the congregation? One time I had someone say to me, I think very honestly, he said, oh, I love the saints, but not all of them. I gather in this area from last night that if you say you love the saints, that, that has a different ring to it in people's ears. I'm not sure the Apostle Paul envisioned the real saints. But we must 
We must make sure that our love and compassion, that our Christ-likeness extends a hand of concern and compassion to all within the church. Because indeed, He has given us all in His providence one one to another, has He not? He has painted those lines of connection and relationship that you have with others here in the congregation. You have a responsibility one to another to work at loving even those that you feel the least love for. Because it is a truism to say it. They will know that we are Christians by our love. You see, love, and especially love in the Spirit, Paul emphasizes, characterizes the normal Christian life. Look at verse 8. And has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It's quite interesting that this is really the only time the Apostle Paul goes out of the way to mention the Holy Spirit. Oh, he mentions the Father as the means of introducing the deity of Christ and His authority. He focuses upon the Son throughout the epistle as the focal point of our redemption and the one in with whom we have union, through whom we have union and communion. Here, the Holy Spirit is only mentioned as sort of a passing phrase, but we have to remember that the Apostle Paul is thoroughgoingly Trinitarian, that the Spirit is poured out by the Father and by the Son, that He's rightly elsewhere called the Spirit of Christ, and that God works in that Trinitarian fashion by the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. All of redemption comes to us in this way. And so the Holy Spirit is implied and in the background and quietly assumed in every aspect of the work of Christ that the Apostle Paul is here mentioning. Christian faith and love are spiritual because they come by the empower, empowering work of the Holy Spirit. And Christian hope is given birth by Christian faith and Christian love. Verse 5 mentions, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Christian hope is heard in the gospel. As we hear that God has set His love upon us in His Son, as we hear the rudiments of the gospel and find that we are in faith united to Him, so hope blossoms in our heart and in our lives. You see, the gospel is the word of truth. It's not one of the four Gospels that's in view here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's rather the whole teaching about Jesus coming into the world to save sinners like us. Hope is heard as the Gospel is preached. And through the ear we come to believe in our hearts. And hope then has root. Hope for the future. Hope for Christ returning again and setting all things right. Hope that we will be with Him forever in the new heavens and new earth and so have no need to fear. But rather, even in a time of pressure and difficulty, we can face tomorrow with joy and expectation because our hope is grounded in Christ our Lord. Hope brings power. We hear in verses 6 and 7, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Oh, the gospel. The gospel comes in power, and so it brings Christian hope and power to us. 
Here we're told that in all the world, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit. And it bears fruit in two different dimensions. One is it bears fruit in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, The Lord changes us in the way that we feel and think and live, and so He makes us more and more after the image of His Son. And the Gospel is powerful because it produces a change as it goes forth to every tongue and tribe and people and nation, as it goes next door and around the block and to the neighborhood, and it gathers in the saints that have been appointed to eternal life. So the church... The power of the Gospel and the hope of the Gospel are seen in the internal growth in people's lives and in the numerical outward growth even of the church. Therefore, as we labor in the Gospel, we must labor expectantly. Labor expecting the Lord to bring blessing. Expecting Him to give us opportunities for Gospel witness and Gospel service. We must look for them and take advantage. We must impact our family and friends and neighbors with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that word will not return void. We expect such growth and change in your life and in mine. And we expect such growth and change in the life of the church. Oh yes, down through the years and decades, uh, the numbers in the pew might rise and fall, but at the end of the day, we know that Wave after wave after wave will come that God's Word will not return void or be mocked and that He will build up His church, that He will gather in the saints according to His eternal plan. And so we are so bold as to invite strangers to come. We are so confident and hope-filled as to know that as they come, the Lord will in His good time change hearts and lives and add to our numbers and our witness to the good things of Christ in the community. Oh, sometimes people assign pews to be filled and a certain number of uh, scalps that you must bring. Uh, We don't resort to such tricks. But with an open hand and an open heart and with an open Bible, we share the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, confidently knowing that He will make a difference in people's lives. You see, Christian hope finds its ultimate root in Jesus Christ Himself. Because of the hope, verse 5, laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the Gospel, the truth of the Gospel. Who is the hope laid up for you in heaven? It's a personification of hope. And it reminds us of Psalm 73. You remember that old metrical psalm? Whom have I in heaven but Thee? There is none upon the earth that I can desire besides Thee. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? Well, it's very true, even if it's a little hard to sing. And Psalm 16 reads, I said to the Lord, Thou art my Lord. I have no good besides Thee. You see... The hope that is laid for us in heaven is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. And He cannot be separated from His benefits. He gives Himself to us. He Himself is our life, our breath and our strength. We see it 
Even as the table of the Lord is laid out for us. And we have in that physical fashion through the elements of the bread and the cup symbolized His body and His blood and the labor that He's done for us. Oh, we feel it. Even as it comes forth from this pulpit. As the Word of God is announced and pressed upon our hearts and consciences. And so we come to more deeply trust in Christ and more fully be conformed to His image. It's a confidence, a love, a faith, a hope in Jesus Christ alone. By faith alone. By grace alone. And so the question for us this morning, the question for you is, do you have Christian hope? Do you have Christian faith and hope and love? They come to you only in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Put no confidence in princes. Your portfolios will not save you. But Jesus Christ our Lord, now He is the bedrock and ground on which your Christian life is rightly built. That's the key point the Apostle Paul wants to make to the Colossians. And he tells them right in the opening verses of his concern. And throughout the epistle, in one way or another, he tells them over and over and over again the truth in fact of faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ is our only comfort in life and in death. Christ alone gives us what we need for Christian living. Have you seen Him? Have you known Him? Have you felt Him to be the source of faith, hope, and love in your life? Trust in Him. Trust in Him and He will fill you. No, He will flood your soul with all that you need and use you to His glory. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for Your Son incarnate, Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank You that He is the One in whom we can have faith and hope and love. Help us to care one for another with true Christian love from Him. Help us, O Heavenly Father, to have a a bedrock faith and trust in Him which You alone can give, uh, not just passing through our minds, but down to the depth of our souls. And help us to lift up our eyes and have hope. Not hope in ourselves and our own abilities, but hope in Jesus and who He is and what He can do through us even. To the glory of God our Father, in whose name we pray, Christ our Lord. Amen.